Hello. Hello, how's it going? I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) That was six hours of taking notes. I'm scared. I'm very scared. A doozy. It's a doozy. Oh boy. Welcome to Bookaholics Anonymous. I'm Francesca. I'm Alicia. And I'm tired. (laughs) Oh, and I'm cold. My hands are cold. What are you drinking? (laughs) I'm drinking a seltzer water from a local brewery close to me. And it's called the Pastry Seltzer, and it has passion fruit, pineapple, and peach. I don't know why it's called pastry, because it's not, like, chocolatey or anything, but... What brewery? Uh, Evil Twin. Mmm. Never heard of them. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah, they had, like, local pickups, so I just ordered it online and then went in and picked it up. Mm. It was so nice. That's... Love that for you. Mm Mm-hmm. What are you drinking? I have peppermint tea with a little bit... Just a little (laughs) bit... (laughs) <laughs> of peppermint vodka oh boy like a little bit just oh, a no. little <laughs> it's really hot my because i'm so my i'm so cold i don't know why i think my thyroid is off again Ooh. that's fun for us okay i think we should just jump right into it because this is a doozy yeah yeah okay so before i start i just want to give a huge trigger warning for this because this book talks a lot about um mental illness that's literally what this book is about it's mental illness isn't it love listen (laughs) mental illness isn't it um it heavy mental illness um discussion of sexual assault and abuse um, which, of course, I'm going to do my best to tread lightly and speak with as much sensitivity as I can on the topic. There's also, um, I'll try and give a trigger warning before I talk about it. So if you do are interested in this and want to listen, but you're sensitive to that, I'll try and briefly trigger warning before I talk about it. So you can just skip over it. Um, that being said, there's a lot of medical talk in this, and I am not a medical expert. <laughs> really? I can barely spell my own name, much less say half of these drugs. Oh, so, bear with me. It's a lot. Okay. Is this a crime book? No. Okay, interesting, because I, to prepare for this, Francesca didn't tell me what book she's uh, reading this we week. We never tell Although each other I- which books we're doing. Yeah. Well, sometimes we do. Sometimes. If we're really, sure. really excited. Yeah, occasionally. Right. But um, she did, I did somewhat pick this book because she texted me two words and then I had to pick a word and then that's how it happened. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. I just assumed that it would be a crime book. So I listened to crime podcasts all day to prepare myself. Oh, that's so funny because the other option was a crime book. Oh, I love that. So like. Love it. W- same <laughs> wavelength. I was listening to Morbid, and I Oof. was just listening to the um, Myra Hindley episode. It was really good. Hmm. I'm not done with it, but it yeah. was fantastic so Love far. that for you. This book is called Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Hmm, I don't think I've heard of this one. By Robert Kolker. 
So he has also written Lost Girls about the Long Island serial killer, which now I super want to read after reading this book. But that being said, let's hop on into it. Oh boy. So we open with a prologue and the story starts with seven-year-old Mary tying her brother Donald to a tree. Donald is in his mid-twenties. He is his... (laughs) His head is shaved, he's dressed kind of like a monk, and Donald believes that Mary is Mary, the virgin mother of Christ. Oh, Lord. And basically, he will do anything she says because of this belief, and Mary absolutely hates that. (laughs) So, she ties him to this tree because she wants to just set him on fire and get rid of him, which, like, okay, I told my mom this part of the story, yeah. um, how she ties him to the tree, and she goes, Uh and I talk to my Uncle Steve pretty much once a week. She goes, oh, ask Uncle Steve if he remembers when I tied him to a tree. And I was like, what? And she goes, yeah, just ask him. So I texted him, and I was like, yeah, do you remember mom doing that? And he goes, yeah, bitch. I was like, damn. (laughs) Big mood. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've tied my brother to a tree. Um, can't say I've ever been tied to a tree. I was almost drowned intentionally by a sister. I guess sisters just, like, sisters of, you know, just sisters have, like, a different forte, you know? Yeah, exactly. So she ties him to this tree, wanting to set him on fire. Ultimately, she doesn't, I think, because she can't find matches or something, but (laughs) she just leaves him back there tied to the tree and then just goes back into the house for some peace and quiet by herself. So good on her. That's a good way to get rid of your babysitter. Yeah. So it switches gears after that to Mary visiting Donald at his assisted living facility 45 years later. You learn that Mary and Donald are two siblings from a family of 12 children. Ten boys and two girls. Oh my goodness. Not in my vagina there isn't. <laughs> Absolutely not. Are you kidding? And that six of the boys were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Oh my lord, this poor family. Yeah. That's a lot of medical bills. Yeah. So the thing I just sent you is yes. a family rundown. Like of all of the members of the family. Okay, okay, okay. Just so it's easier if you're confused, you can look at the list of which order the children are oh in. Oh my, there are a lot of M names. I do not like them. <laughs> So, the schizophrenia manifests very differently for each brother, and in the book, it says that one of them commits a very heinous act, but in my opinion, two of them do. So, I said that two of them commit very heinous acts after, or with their diagnoses. Not, and I'm, I'd also like to preface this by saying I don't agree with blaming the schizophrenia on their actions. I don't believe in using mental illness as an excuse for their behavior. That being said, do I think that it contributed to it? Yes. Do I think that that is the only reason these things happened? Absolutely not. And I don't, and I'm not saying that that's what the author implies at all. I'm just saying that that, that's just my piece. I, anyway. So because of the unique position they're in, having 12 kids and six of them being schizophrenic, the family ultimately ends up contributing 
to science with their DNA in, a, like, a major, major way, which is talked about okay. in the book. Oh, boy. So the book actually starts with their mother, Mimi Galvin, listening to the birds in Colorado Springs in 1951. And then it just goes into this, like, long-winded explanation about Mimi and their father, Don, and their obsession with falconry, and it becoming a big part of, like, the family and their hobby early in their marriage after they moved to Colorado Springs. They're, like, super into falconry. I'm like, okay, sis. Whatever floats your boat. Is this a bad time to mention that my family used to have, like, falcons and and shit? They used to do birds? To each their own, but, like, these people (laughs) literally let the falcons like fly free in the house oh no and they were like you had to stop sidestep to watch for shit and i'm like absolutely not no we had a bird his name was coco and he lived outside yeah my grandmother god rest her soul oh (laughs) we just we just did a what is it called the sign of the cross yeah we don't do that uh because i'm not catholic but (laughs) yeah well i was and i'm not anymore but God rest her soul. She had Bubba, her favorite bird. Love that for her. Yeah. So to each their own. I just thought, you know, domesticating falcons is an interesting hobby. It it is. I can I can confirm that. It is very interesting. <laughs> so this is where we kind of find out Mimi's backstory. So born in Texas in 1924, she was born into a very wealthy extended family. So she spent most of her childhood listening to classical music and really appreciating the arts. What a high-class bitch. Yes. Also, I'm going to avoid adding names that aren't necessarily relevant. (laughs) Okay. Just to avoid confusions. Right. Because there's a lot of siblings. I don't want to confuse anyone. So unless it's absolutely necessary, they're not getting a name. So, her grandfather was a civil engineer that was, like, the one that really made the money for the family Uh through his projects in levying rivers in the South. So, he made, Mm -hmm. like, a lot of money doing that. Right. So, Mimi's father was approved by her grandparents, but ultimately did not live up to the expectations of the family after he exposed Mimi's mother to gonorrhea. Mimi's grandfather chased her father with a rifle through, like, the grounds of their estate and then secured a quick divorce for the parents. Good job. Yes. Honestly. So, at the age of five, Mimi's mother remarried an artist from New York. Mimi and her sister and her mother all moved to New York after the marriage in 1929 So Mimi's childhood was spent going to the Met and appreciating more art. Oh, and she bitch after my own heart. (laughs) And she would later say that she loved growing up in New York and that it was the best education there really was. However, after her mother's remarriage, the family struggled with money. Um, The mother was working in the garment district and the father was an artist. So Mimi really, like, learned how to sew and make her own dresses and things like that, which would come in handy later down the road when she has to do that for her kids. Right. So in 1937, at the age of 13, she meets a young Don Galvin, who was 14 at the time, and would ultimately give her the life of her dreams, quote unquote. Oh, boy. 
Don was personable and charismatic and all around like a good American boy. And in 1941, after uh, a few months before Pearl Harbor, uh, Don enrolled at Georgetown for... Sorry, I, like, did the talk-to-text notes, and, like, obviously it's not, like, fully right, and I didn't have time to go through and, like, correct it. So, Don enrolled at Georgetown for... for, Don enrolled at Georgetown for foreign services in Washington, D.C. That was, like, his major. And then Mimi enrolled in her college in Maryland a year later to be closer to him. But in 1942, Don would ultimately enlist in the Navy during World War II, which would take him up and down the East Coast for training. Just before Christmas, a few weeks before he shipped out, he called Mimi. He was in California or Colorado, one of the two. Um, And he asked her to come visit. Mimi's mother said yes. She went out um, where they would end up getting married. And that was not favorable for the Galvin family, as they wanted a big Catholic wedding. So before he shipped out, he came home and they had a wedding and renewed their vows at St. Gregory the Great in Belrose, Queens, on December 30th, 1944. They also married so quickly because Mimi was pregnant. (laughs) So her husband was shipped out to Japan in 1945. And Mimi was devastated to hear that his ship had been blown up, only to find out that that was, like, the incorrect information. Like, it was a ship next to his that got blown up, so he Uh was fine. But he did receive a telegram on board of the ship, letting him know that she had a boy on July 22nd, 1945. Oh, boy. So now is kind of where we get, like, a background on the research of schizophrenia. I'm going to be not glazing over it, but I'm not going to give as much information because it was very sciencey. And I was an English major. I don't, (laughs) I can't compute that. So, like, I'm going to do my very, very best, but it's probably going to be, like, C grade. Like, unimpressive. So... (laughs) The idea of schizophrenia, it started in 1903 in Dresden, Germany. I think it was Dresden. Um, after the publication of memoir of the publication of Memoirs of My Nervous Illness by Daniel Paul Schreiber. At the time, schizophrenia really didn't have a name, and there were a lot of misconceptions around it. So it was even to, it was difficult to determine what he even had. The father or the uh, son that was just born. No, this is a different person. This is the person that wrote the publication, yes. So there were a lot of misconceptions, and it was difficult to determine what he had. But the book would actually start a conversation between Freud and his young protege about whether schizophrenia was a brain Mm -hmm. illness or caused by issues from the mother, a.k.a. Freud's need to attach everything to the libido of a young man and his bitchy mother. Okay. Yeah, because if if you know Freud, you know that he loved to just make everything the mom's fault. Because Guy had some issues. Of course. So the argument tried to, like, decipher whether it was nature versus nurture kind of thing. Right. And this is the time when the Galvin children were being born and schizophrenia was just 
becoming a thing. Love that for you. Well, I started drinking that yeah. one before we started recording. <laughs> so it is also noted in the book that the birth of her first son, Donald. So the father mm-hmm. is Don, the son is Donald, just to be clear. Okay. Okay. So the first, for the birth of her first son, Donald, was the only time she accepted anesthesia for the birth of any of her 12 kids. What a rock. I could never. Oh, no, absolutely not. Mm-mm. I need numbing gel mm. for a shot. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> so after Japan surrendered in September of 1945, Don was transferred, like, up and down the East Coast. So just weeks after their move to Rhode Island, they had their second son, Jim. Don's job was to shuttle different ships between New York, Panama, Trinidad, the whole Caribbean, basically. Got it, got it. And during that time, Mimi stayed by herself with the boys for weeks at a time. He was then transferred to Norfolk, Virginia. So in Norfolk, Don really wanted the Navy to sponsor his law degree. And despite glowing recommendations from his superiors, uh, he was ultimately rejected. And he was also turned down for any graduate level coursework he applied for. Oh no, poor baby. Um, during this time, Mimi was like pinching the pennies. She was getting about $35 a week from the Navy, sometimes if it wasn't lost in the mail. Oh no. So she would have to like rely on her neighbors to get like groceries and diapers and shit like that. So she was sewing the kids' clothes and like, yeah. So it was implied that Don might have also been having an affair with his captain's wife. Oh While he was away gosh. on these trips. Oh my lord. Keep it in your pants, sir. Damn. It's like mentioned at this part in the book, but it's like lightly, like, it's just like a, oh, they found places to be alone. Like, there wasn't a lot of privacy there, but like, at the end of 1945, after another violently ill pregnancy, as it's put in the book, oh my gosh. Mimi gave birth to their third son, John. Okay. So Don continues to request transfers to different bases that have law programs uh, in exchange for, like, a staying committed to the Navy. But he was continually rejected. <laughs> Mood. And because Mimi can't handle all three boys by herself anymore, because uh, they're all under the age of five, understandably, Don puts his notice in, in the Navy, dating family issues. So they left. So they had plans to go back to New York, where Don would enroll in Fordham's law program in the Bronx, and she would finally get the life she always wanted, once they started shopping for homes in Levittown on Long Island. Okay, sir. So Don had been talking to his brother, who had recently become an officer in the Air Force that had just newly formed. Mm-hmm. Like, the Air Force was formed right. in World War II. So learning right. that if he applied to the Air Force, then he would automatically be made an officer, putting him in a higher rank than what he was in the Navy, I think. So the Air Force headquarters were on Long Island at the time. So Mimi was also rightfully angry that Don was, like, backtracking on their plans again. So they end up, like, they put a deposit down on a house. So she was like, Mm -hmm. all right, I got a house. Fine. Until the Air Force announces that they're moving their headquarters to Colorado. And they quickly have to scramble to get their deposit back. Oh, my gosh. So they moved to Colorado in January of 51. Mimi hated in Colorado at first. Their home was a dump, and it was completely different from the life she had 
wanted in Levittown. So she, like, cried for days and was just angry at mm. being put in a situation that she didn't want to be in. Fair. Then it circles back to their love of falconry and how, strangely, in my opinion, like, obsessed they become with, like, catching and domesticating hawks and falcons. Yeah. I mean, but that being said, it's, like, understandable when you're in the middle of the desert and have nothing else to do. Yeah. Yeah, what else are you going to do, really? Yeah. Stare at dirt? Like, uh. <laughs> Literally. So in 1951 and in 1953, there was their fourth and fifth boys, Brian and Michael, respectively. Bombay, that's what Talk to Text assumed Don was. Love that. So he became an intelligence officer for the Air Force as the Cold War approached. Because Don came from such a large Irish Catholic family... Mimi ultimately converted to Catholicism after they moved to Colorado. What was she? I thought she was Catholic. I think she said she was like Protestant or something. Ayo. Yeah. So she became very close with her tutor, Father Robert Freudenstein. Oh, do not like that. <laughs> who Anytime a father is... No. It's a no. Who she called Freudy. <laughs> yeah okay she he would take her to the royal ballet when it was in denver or just like popeye for lunch you know like whenever um, okay sure so they continued to move around to different bases one in quebec in 1954 uh then in 55 three years at hamilton air force base in northern california oh, when you said hamilton i thought you meant canada <laughs> love that for me. <laughs> so on return to Colorado Springs, they now had eight boys. Richard, who was born in 54, Joe in 56, and Mark in 57. Oh my gosh, that many boys? Yeah, I can't imagine. So they would all wear their sports coats and ties and nice dress shoes to Sunday mass. They were never allowed to long ha- have long hair. Mimi kept a very strict household. <laughs> we love You have to with that many yeah, boys. Yeah, right? So, she wasn't one to coddle her children or be, like, overtly affectionate with them. Rude. She liked things a certain way, and she wanted them a certain way. I'm with her. Bad bitch. Love that. (laughs) Yeah. But that sort of mothering would ultimately, like, work against her during the 50s. Oh, no. With the emergence of the phrase schizophrenic. (laughs) Okay. We're moving back into the progression of the research on schizophrenia, right? Right. So in right. Maryland of 1948, Frida from Reichman comes to America as a Jewish refugee in Ger- from Germany. She firmly believes the idea of talk therapy is like the best cure for any illness. It seems like that's like her opinion. Don't quote me on that. Even though I read the book, don't quote me on that. <laughs> This was a a 300 and fuck. It was a volume. It was a textbook of information. It was 335 pages, but an extra like 50 pages in the back of just like bibliography, notes, all of it. Yeah. It's a no from me. So she. So is this a nonfiction or is it a fiction? It's a nonfiction. This is a real, true, real story. Okay, okay, okay. So she firmly believes that schizophrenia is curable. And anyone who doesn't think so just, like, does not care enough. Just like, okay, bitch. I see you. So I'm going to, like, gloss over this part. 
of the early stages of studying schizophrenia because it talks about things like sterilizing mentally ill people oh and eugenics okay. and oh no we do not like that it's just not nice in my opinion and it's oh, not no. necessary to focus on for the story like i don't right. want to talk about that again not something i agree with which is why i'm not talking about it anyway an important thing from reichman was that she contributed in the early 40s. She advocated against the dangers of an overbearing and domineering mother, a.k.a. Mimi. So, Oh, no, poor Mimi. She believed that mothers like this would severely warp the young patients' minds and that schizophrenia, pa- schizophrenic patients would become very like distrustful and resentful of the people that are around them, which incidentally mm-hmm. is exactly what Freud did was blaming everything on the mother. So take that with a grain of salt. Mm, so Reichman did not like fathers like Don Galvin either, who tended to take more of a backseat and was more of a pal than a father to the children, whereas the mother was so more of a leader. basically this woman is just enforcing normal gender roles onto parents. Yes. But like not at the same... But no, like I'm... She's like... She wants the parents, it's hard to explain, like, I understand why it is. She doesn't want them to be overtly cold. Like, she doesn't like, obviously she would never like a tiger mom, but she also wants a dad to participate in disciplining the children, and the the dads that don't are the ones she doesn't like. That is, like, what she doesn't like. So, from the National Institute of Mental Health, or NEMA, as I'm going to refer to it in the future, NEMA, um, the description of a schizophrenic mother was cold, a cold perfectionist, anxious, over-controlling, and restrictive. Another description that I loved was on the page 36 of this book, which was a prototype of the middle-class Anglo-Saxon American woman, prim and proper, but totally lacking in genuine affection. It's like a damn... Got him. <laughs> like, got him. <laughs> but this kind of thinking of parents put Mimi and Dawn in a bit of a, like a bind because no matter what psychiatrists were, they were always going to blame the parents for their children's right. illnesses. So, like, there was no point in bringing oh, them to the doctor because. Do not like that. There was nothing that they were going to do. They were just going to turn around right. and be like, this is your fault. Which, right. Like, fuck. Okay. Like, okay, thanks. I guess I'll just go fuck myself. I love the 50s. Love the 50s in their studies on mental illnesses. (laughs) It's mental illness, isn't it? So the family returned to Colorado Springs in 1958. During their time in Northern California, Don worked nights to receive his master's degree in political science from Stanford. Love that. And then back in Colorado, he started, like, the vision of, like, his perfect life. Where he, like, joined the Air Force Academia side as, like, an instructor on the Air Force base. Mm-hmm. So they right. moved into a new home and set up bunk beds in the basement for the eight boys. So four bunk beds. Oh. Okay, great. Love that. So Matthew, their ninth boy, was born in December 58. Hi, Matthew! Yeah, triggered. <laughs> That's my brother's name. <laughs> so during their time in Canada, Don had issues with his emotional state that warranted him being sent to a Walter Reed hospital in Washington, D.C. Mimi believed it was an attack of the nerves kind of thing. 
Mimi and Don were the ones that actually suggested the Falcon become the mascot of the Air Force, as mentioned several times in the book. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. No one cares. <laughs> it is also noted that Don had taken to referring to the boys by number and not by name. Hello, Umbrella oh, Academy. No. Nice to see you. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. That's yeah. not good. Yeah. <laughs> Which, to be fair, like, after ten kids, I'd start referring to them by a number after a while, too. My mom has three, and she still gets it wrong. She'll go through my sister's names, my aunt's names, before she gets to mine. Like... Love that for you. Just call me number three. <laughs> like, codename Kid Next Door? Yeah. <laughs> So, while getting his PhD at the University of Colorado, rather than giving up his work duties, Don actually stepped back from coaching the boys' sports teams, and he became what Mimi referred to him as a quote-unquote armchair father. Ooh, got him! She's just firing off shots (laughs) every step of the way. So, as the boys got older, they also worked as altar boys for mass. Each, like, they each had a specific day that they did mass. So... They were so close that when Freudy's license was revoked for, like, drinking, Donald, their oldest, spent a week with him on the prairie working as his chauffeur. Don't like that. Don't okay. like that. Yeah. Don't like that. Don't like that. Nope. Mm-mm. Wait, can popes not drink? Priests? Yeah. The pope Whatever is not. The fuck the, they're called. Yeah. The pope is, like, the I head know. honcho. I'm not yeah. Catholic. I know you're not. It's okay. Um, Priests? I think they can i just don't oh think but he was like a drunk to. yeah he was an alcoholic like okay, okay alcoholism okay. i was like is his second whole man out because he had a sip of beer yeah, like. no like he was drinking and driving like that's why well, you yeah. can't do that sir yes that's illegal yes so they were obviously a very noticeable family you know with the whole football yeah. team in their basement yeah, yeah um yeah. so they were constantly in the paper whether it was for don's work or for whatever the boys were doing Right. As Donald, their oldest, grew up, he was very athletic. He was a track star. Um, he was an all-state guard and tackle on the Air Academy high school football team. And the whole family would attend his games, like, every Friday night. He was dating a cheerleader who also happened to be his father's boss's daughter. Oh, he was popular. That's He gross. was just like his father. But Don and Mimi noticed that there was something just, like, a little off- with him, he was a bit quieter than Don was in high school. And even though he was a fantastic football player, he wasn't exactly going to be the kid that got elected class president, you know? Yeah. 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 Donald exercises more authority at home when his parents aren't around, often making his brothers fight each other, like actual fist fights. Oh. Yeah. It was like a world star in their basement. Yeah. When... The younger boys would beg their parents not to leave them alone with Donald. Their parents kind of, like, brushed them off. And John, the third oldest, thought Donald was his father's favorite because he was always taking Donald's word over theirs. Mm-hmm. So Don and Mimi sometimes thought that these fights were best settled between the boys and that interceding too much would send the wrong message. But yeah, go ahead. Let your boys punch each other in the face. Yeah, that just does not... Mm. To be fair, my dad and my uncle used to do that. There was a... There, they had, like, the old 60s TV where you had to turn, the, twist the dial. And right. one of their dials you you could pull off. And my dad uh-huh. used to say that it's, like, when you pull the dial off and smelt, it, like, smelt really bad on the other side. So yeah. he would hold my uncle down and press it to his face so he had to smell it. 
Oh my gosh. Boys are brutal. So, whereas Donald was the perfect child to his parents, Jim was a bit more of a nonconformist, I guess you could say. He tended to have it out for his older brother. Like, he was always trying to, like, one-up him and, like, trying to beat him up, and it never worked. And whenever they fight and he'd lose, he'd just go and wail on the punching bag. Oh, my gosh. Like, yeah. So the, bro- the so the fighting got so bad that Don bought them like self help books to try and get them to stop fighting, <laughs> which obviously didn't work because they're boys no. and they would never read something like that. So when that didn't work, he introduced boxing gloves as if that would solve the problem. That he mm, gave okay, sir. boxing gloves to fully grown football players and said, "Here, hit each other with this." What? That no, no, no. That's bad parenting. So. Of course, like, having so many kids, some of the middle brothers, John, Michael, Richard, and Matt, tended to feel a bit, like, neglected and lost in translation because of how many brothers they had. Which, understandable. Yeah. For sure. So, Peter, the 10th son, was born on November 15th, 1960. Her doctor warned her gravely that she should stop having children. Like, she (laughs) immediately. Because of 15 years of back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back pregnancies. Like, girl, stop. Yeah, seriously. So, in 1961, just a few months after giving birth to Peter, Mimi was pregnant again for the 11th time. fucking gosh. Holy shit. In February of 1962, Mimi gave birth to Margaret, and it was broken in the new- like, they- it was front page newspaper with the headline, at long last, it's a girl. Oh my god. And Don made a joke of disappointment that this one was supposed to be my quarterback. (laughs) That's a good joke. Yeah, it is. That's funny. So all of the boys had some sort of musical talent, whether it was playing the clarinet, the French horn, the piano, guitar. They all had some sort of music inclination, just to put that out Uh there. But in October of 1965, at the age of 40, Mimi gave birth to their last child, a little girl, Mary. Got it. Her doctor also warned her that if she got pregnant again, he would have refused to treat her and recommended a hysterectomy. And Mimi reluctantly agreed. So around 17 years old, Donald smashed 10 plates in one night while standing in front of the kitchen sink. That is not good, sir. Yeah. Don wrote it off as him just being like a moody teenager. What? But Donald knew there was something wrong and he had known it for a while. His grades weren't stellar, and he wasn't much like the man his father wanted him to be. Donald also recognized how regularly he felt trapped and being frustrated with the person he wanted to be and not, like, being that. So he knew there was something wrong, but he didn't know Mm -hmm. what it was, and more than anything, he was just scared. Right. So in the summer of 1963, the family moved to their last home on Hidden Valley Road. Inside the carpeted living room, it was, like, connected to the kitchen and a dining room that was just big enough for their mega big dining room table that could fit six down each side and two at the ends if needed. Damn. Yeah. So this split-level style house, like, allowed for downstairs to be used more as, like, a sleeping area by necessity Mm -hmm. than as Mm -hmm. a basement. So the older boys that had left, still left at home... So they had, like, each child, like, each room had two children in it, and then, like, the mm-hmm. leftover last two. 
that couldn't like that were just about to leave home from like high school and college or whatever they had to sleep on corner couch units that folded out into beds at night (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) like bro so the same year that donald started his freshman year at colorado state he had told his parents he wanted to be a doctor but something inside of him was like fearful of something Mm-hmm. But now that Donald was gone, Jim was going to seize the opportunity of being, like, the big man on campus, you know? Oh, boy. So, it seemed like Jim was always in competition with himself against Donald. Mm-hmm. And as it's put in the book, if Donald won childhood, the first the first round, Jim was going to win the next round, real life. Okay, that does not seem like a good mentality, but... Holy shit. Okay, I'm sorry to listeners. You're going to hear my windy ass outside during this because I can't control that. And like your girl said, she does not have soundproofing in here. So he tried to be like the cool big brother. Like he always wore a biker jacket and drove his brothers around and would offer to sneak a little rum into their coke, like that sort of thing. Like, okay... Mm -hmm. Richard remarked that at 16, they knew there was something wrong with the gym, but they thought it was okay because he was, like, a boy, you know? He was, like, going out and drinking, and they didn't think that much of it, but they knew something was wrong. Right. So, Jim ended up getting kicked out of the Air Academy High School in the middle of a senior year because him and his friend were, like, clowning around on the planes, like, that were on campus, and Jim mm-hmm. got inside one of the cockpits. His friend was outside, and Jim, like, pushed a button that made the plane move a little bit. But it was enough to send the kid flying backwards and colliding with the tail of the jet. And it said that an inch or two more, and the kid definitely would have died. Oh, my gosh. Yikes. So Jim transferred to the local Catholic high school, St. Mary's. They expelled him for that? I mean, I mean it's an Air Force high school. Like, it's not... The same as a public school. <laughs> I know, but, like, I mean, aren't military high schools supposed to be, like, the place that, like, your you, parents, like, yeah, send right? you because you're a bad kid? Like, Could you, I don't know. Like, how do you get expelled <laughs> from the school that they send the bad kids? <laughs> <laughs> and then get sent to, like, a private Catholic school. school. Must like, be nice. <clears throat> so Mimi thought the problem with the gym was on its way to being solved because he was just about to graduate high school. Right? And be off on his own aka i kind of think she thought of it as like out of sight out of mind kind of situation yeah which like no deal with your shit so she it goes on to talk about how she really wanted the boys to be cultured in art and music and really worked hard to make sure that they appreciated it appreciated Mm -hmm. it which i think that they did because of all of their musical inclinations right So in 1966, Don retired from the Air Force and started a new career overseeing funded programs from the federal government that benefited states, working heavily as a full-time executive director of the Federation of Rocky Mountain States. Holy shit, that's a mouthful. Yeah. So the job was kind of just like helping the region attract more industry and banking and arts and major transportation because... Like, this isn't, like, California West. This is, like, New Mexico, Arizona. Like, this is still developing area. Okay. Even mm-hmm. at that time. Because, like, right. California, yeah, had, like, the movie stars, but nothing in the middle. <laughs> there was <laughs> nothing there. So. Mood. He was trying to, like, get the industry and get people to move out there. Right. 
So the job allowed for Don Mimi to travel more and kind of rub elbows with the rich and powerful people. Mimi had dreamed essentially of their life like that. They were hanging right. out with the likes of like Georgia O'Keefe and Ooh. yeah, Henrietta Wythe, I think is how you say uh-huh. the last name, who insisted yeah. on painting Margaret and Mary. Like, you know, bougie ass people. Right. And in 1967, they also became friends with oil wildcatter Sam Gary, who had, like, crazy money. Damn. And at these events, the women would describe Dawn as handsome and intelligent and a little flirty. And Mimi's friends would refer to him as Romeo. Mm. Don't like that. No. <laughs> so in, no. So in September of 64... Donald started his sophomore year at Colorado State and paid his first visit to the campus health center. He had a bite mark from a cat on his thumb that he wanted to get treated, but he offered no reason as to why the cat bit him. He returned that spring with a concern that his roommate had caught syphilis and he was worried he would also get it. So they had to explain to him that he had to sleep with his roommate to get syphilis. (laughs) Like he had nothing to worry about. I love that. Yeah. So, in the fall of 65, Donald returned to the health center with the burns on his body. After some probing from the doctors, it came out that Donald had jumped... Jumped? Excuse me? It came out that Donald had jumped straight into the pepper alley fire. They weren't sure if he did it to get attention, to impress a friend, or maybe it was a cry for help. Donald did not say. Or could not say. Um, Imagine working at this health center. And this kid just coming in, like, every week, and you're like, oh, my God, can someone, (laughs) literally someone else take him? No. Literally. No. Donna, I took him last week. It's your turn. Literally. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing this. (laughs) Seriously, it's literally how it went. I can guarantee it. Karen, I'm not taking him. No, it's your turn. It's your turn. (laughs) (sighs) He was pulled from his classes and sent for a psychiatric evaluation. This is the first time a mental health professional saw Donald and the first time his parents would be faced with the fact that their son might actually have a problem. And I use the word problem very loosely. (laughs) So the doctor ultimately couldn't find any evidence suggesting a serious disorder. And the major who performed the evaluation, because this was at the Air Force Academy Hospital, so it was someone of rank, so it was a major. Right. Um, they suggested he could go back to school, but he should continue getting psychiatric help. That's solid advice. Before they could really figure out why Donald threw himself into a fucking fire, he started school again. And really, like, went headfirst, full force into, like, campus life. Like, he ended up dating a classmate, and within a few months, they were talking about marriage, which seems fast, but for Donald, he really wanted, like, this normal life. And this is how he was going to get it, by getting married. And it was also, like, the 60s. Yeah. So. So, when they broke up, Donald was, like, a hot mess. Like, just a wreck. Aw. He he tried making things right with her and racked up over $150 in long-distance phone call bills. Which, when you think about it at the time, like, how cheap that probably was, that was a lot. That's a lot. So, and then he was unable to pay his rent. Which I can't imagine how much his rent was if he couldn't, if he's in that debt. But anyway, I digress. He couldn't tell his parents, though, for whatever reason. He just couldn't face them. So he found a place where he could live rent free. And in the fall of 66, he set up in an old abandoned fruit cellar factory. 
near campus. It had electricity and an old heater, but no water. You win some, you lose some, I guess. <laughs> if that listing was put on like Zillow today in Manhattan, it would probably be $2,000. Like Literally. Li- like right in like prime Manhattan spots. Yeah. Yep. For sure. So that November, he returned to the health center again with another cat bite. Oh my lord, sir, stop harassing cats. When they learned that this was his second cat bite within a year or two, they sent him for a full psychiatric workup, which seems bizarre, but okay. His intake notes say bizarre, self-destructive things. He had run through a bonfire, put a cord around his neck, turned on the gas, even gone to a funeral home to price caskets. Oh and my god! He can't explain why. So, Sir, I think you need help. <laughs> so he shared fantasies about killing people, different people, with oh. his doctors, and he also admitted that he had two suicides attempts at the age of twelve. Okay, yeah, that's just fantastic. So we also find out that he said he killed the cat. He killed the cat slowly and painfully, but noted that he did get emotionally upset when he discussed this behavior. Oh, my Lord. I hate people. So, when discussing Donald's options, rolling through the different list of institutions he could go to, some were too expensive, some were too far from home. We kind of, like, run through the different imagery released in the 60s about different mental health institutions and how this kind of made the parents a little wary of sending him to any of them. Yeah, they were not great. Yeah. So, the state hospital for the mentally ill... For mental illness in Colorado was Pueblo, and also n- known for treating schizophrenia with insulin shock therapy, and the drug Thorazine. So Mimi and Don said they would exhaust all efforts before they sent their son to a place like that. At the time, schizophrenia and his diagnosis were hard to determine because there was so little known about it, and research was still being done. So it's hard to know if things were really that bad for Donald because of how much, how little was known about schizophrenia. Because of this, the most realistic and sensible thing for Mimi and Don to do was just hope that Donald would get better. (laughs) So they took him back to the Air Force Academy Mm -hmm. Hospital where the same major performed a psychiatric evaluation. He wrote a letter stating that his acute break essentially was just a convergence of all these different bad things happening to him. So, like, his girlfriend breaking up with him, with final exams, losing his housing, like, all this stuff just caused him to snap. Okay. So... I mean, that... Yeah, all right. <laughs> on his return to Colorado sure. State, he continued seeing a psychiatrist at the health center, and in one evaluation wrote that the student is not psychotic, which I feel that. <laughs> but... Um, uh, he even began dating, and that spring he met someone new, and her name was Jean. Described as a tomboy by Donald, and like Donald, she was ambitious, wanting to get her PhD. After several months, they told Mimi and Don they were engaged, and they took that as a positive sign that Donald was doing better, and they were happy that this was, there was no pregnancy that was forcing this marriage. <laughs> like like them, yeah. The only... Th- <laughs> The only thing that didn't match about the two was that Jean was very clear about not wanting kids. She wanted to go after grad work, and kids were just not part of the plan. You and know what? That's her prerogative. Yeah, and Don just, like, would not listen when people brought that up. Ugh. Typical man! 
a white oh, man. I hate that. Now! <laughs> <laughs> Typical! <laughs> so, Jim spent a year after high school going to community college to rebuild his academic reputation. Ultimately, he was accepted to the University of Colorado at Boulder in 1965. And it wasn't lost on Jim that the school he got into was much better than Donald's. But, like, tit for tat, all right? (laughs) (laughs) So, two years in attendance at Boulder, he met Kathy. He was 20, she was 19. And Kathy noticed Jim's contempt for his parents and the resentment he had. They just kept having kids with no regard for the ones they already had. So Kathy ended up getting pregnant. And of course, Jim proposed and they got engaged. Their wedding took place a year after Donald and Jean's in August of 68. Kathy gave birth to their son, Jimmy, who was just a few years younger than Mimi's youngest, Mary. So like, that's... Mm, don't like that so Mm. jim dropped out of school and started bartending full-time and he finally like felt superior to donald because he like had the whole family thing that didn't stop jim from cheating on kathy all the time so trigger warning jim started hitting kathy after she quit her job and decided to go back to school for education the worst that she could do was threaten to leave He hit her so hard in the face that she needed stitches once. So. Mm, mm, mm. No, sir. She couldn't leave him. She never really followed through with it because she believed he might get better and that their son needed their father. And another reason was that she saw Jim was being tormented by something that wasn't her. And she felt sorry for him almost. Like, so no more trigger warning. That was. The hitting part, yes. Um, So, Jim was hearing voices. He stopped sleeping, and in these states, he would be impulsive and violent, but it was never towards Kathy or their son. It was always towards himself. So, Jim's first hospital stay was on Halloween night in 1969. Uh, Jimmy was still just a little baby. When Kathy confronted Mimi and Don about Jim's mental state, they did their best to avoid the conversation altogether, But also, they never mentioned Donald and his situation to her. His brother had the same thing going on. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Okay. So, Kathy Mm -hmm. took him to the University of Colorado Hospital in Denver, and he stayed for two months. And then came home. Jim agreed to get counseling at Pike Peaks Mental Health uh, Center in Colorado Springs, where he was given a prescription for medication. In 1969, all 12 Galvin children came together relatively peacefully to celebrate their father receiving his PhD at the University of Colorado. David Rosenthal, Rosenthal, excuse me, at NEMA began working on a study of siblings with schizophrenia. To maintain their anonymity, um, he called these four sisters the Gainin triplets, excuse me, the Gainin quadruplets, publishing a 600-page study on familial schizophrenia. Their nature, the nature of their childhood seemed to corrupt the experiment as it was filled with like these really awful things that I'm not going to discuss, but it changed the results of the experiment because of that. Um, Rosenthal became the first researcher to suggest that the genetics had a part in schizophrenia and how the environment interacted with those genetics to produce schizophrenia. Okay. So like he was basically the first person to say that 
genetically schizophrenia is like a thing. It's not just environment. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah. Okay. So Donald's marriage to Jean was not a good one. He went to see a psychiatrist and he would talk about how unhappy he was and then how happy he was. And Jean was threatening to leave him because she got an assistance, a paid assistantship at a doctoral program at Oregon State in the fall if they if he didn't get his shit together basically so they ended up getting into another fight so bad that she left the apartment and donald followed her found her sitting near an irrigation ditch and told her that he wanted to drown her uh, mm, so she talked not normal she talked him out of it and when they got back to their apartment together she made one thing very clear she was going to oregon without him Right on, sister. <laughs> so on June 20th, 1970, Donald came home with two cyanide capsules, most likely taken from the lab at school. He dropped them into a glass of hydrochloric acid, took hold of Jean, and tried to hold her still until the cyanide misted over into gas. Oh my god! He planned to have them die together, essentially. The plan didn't work, and Jean escaped. The police were called, and Donald was taken to the hospital for a confined... And for what, sir? And for, for what? what? <laughs> for a confine and treatment order from the district attorney. Oh so then here we get like an overview of the Colorado State Hospital in Pueblo. I'm not going to delve into it. But if you're interested, you can definitely Google it. Um, but it's just a lot of information that is just not 100% important to this. So it also discusses the different drugs that were available to try and sedate and soothe the patient's. This is a whole other can of worms we can discuss at a later date, <laughs> but not now. In 1970, Donald was committed and sent to Pueblo. Upon his arrival, doctors noted that he was diagnosed with depressive neurosis or psychotic depressive. Um, he was prescribed an early generation antidepressant. But a few weeks later, in July of 1970... After he finally cooperated with his treatment, Donald was released from Pueblo and faced no jail time because of the time he spent in the facility. While he was there, Jean filed for divorce. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> Donald returned home to Hidden Valley Road, where Mimi and Don decided to continue making their appearances for the Federation so that nothing looked amiss from the outside. At eight years old, Margaret remembers coming home from school one day to find Donald naked and street shrieking in the house completely empty because he had moved all the furniture into the backyard oh my gosh. their parents had told the girls if anything happened to go in their parents room and lock themselves in because that was the only room in the house with a lock on it when margaret got up there she found five-year-old mary there waiting for someone then moments later their mother joined them because they had to wait for the police to come and do something about donald through the locked door they could hear him screaming biblical nonsense until the police arrived and took him away only to ultimately end up bringing him back. These are such bad choices that you are continually making. <laughs> Margaret often joined her parents for their trips to Salt Lake City and Aspen and other places for the Federation. She enjoys these trips because it got her out of the house and away from the home. And she would get aggravated when any of her brothers would join them because it like, broke the illusion of like their happy family. <laughs> of her only child fantasy <laughs> so growing up she was often tossed around by her brothers which was fun because she was like everybody's toy and it's mentioned oh, like in the book don't like that and she, yeah so they put her through the spanking machine what 
just to pass the time, which wasn't a problem for her because she, like, worshipped the ground her brothers walked on until she got older. Yeah. She internalized a lot of the arguments between her brothers, even if it wasn't about her, but it soon became about her. Walking home from school, her brothers would throw things like pine cones and water water balloons at her. And when she got home, when she got home from school, the spanking machine was still in full effect. But now there was sort of a sexual undertone to it because she wasn't a little kid anymore. Oh no! Ew. Yeah. No. No. So the boys might have considered this innocent, like fun play because they would do it to each other. But because Margaret was a girl, there was obviously like an undertone of uncomfortability for her. So because of how rough they got with each other and how physical they did, Margaret often tried to stay with her mother in the kitchen. She was constantly looking for reassurance and approval from her mother that Mimi just wasn't willing to give her. So she compartmentalized a lot of it, like a lot of her feelings. You mean like, oh, you mean like internalize? Yeah, compartmentalizing it in her brain. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. So... Margaret was eight when Donald moved home after his hospitalization at Pueblo. He would lead a mass for one himself, um, shouting the Beatitudes, the Hail Mary, and other biblical passages by himself. Mimi continued to try and put up a front like their family was totally fine and still the epitome of the family, like the American dream. Yikes. Donald really never let go of Jean. Like he couldn't get over her. And Mimi would just simply say, like, she was she was not a wife and try to imply that her son's problems were because of heartbreak. Okay. Oh, no. No. The only no. person really willing to say anything about Donald was Jim. He would talk to him and tell him to shut the fuck up and make fun of him. <laughs> Mood. And it seemed easier to do that to, than to avoid him because he was always around. At one point, Donald pulled a knife on Mimi when, when Margaret tried to run for the phone and call the police. Donald pulled the phone out of the wall. Uh, Mimi ordered Margaret to run upstairs to the master bedroom. It just so happened that at that time, Joe and Mark were coming home from hockey practice and they jumped in to protect her mother and their mother and ultimately save her life. Oh, Lord. Don and Mimi often sent Margaret and Mary to stay with Jim and Kathy on the weekends because of what was going on at home. It was an easy choice for them to go because it was fun and it also meant they didn't have to deal with Donald. So I'm going right. to put a big ass trigger warning right now. Like, this is a lot, so please proceed with caution. So when Jim started touching Margaret, it seemed normal for her. Uh, uh, She remembers the first time it happening around being five years old in 1967, before Donald's first commitment to Pueblo. Mm -hmm. Margaret's feelings for Jim started to change when she hit puberty around 12 years old, and that's when she started to reject him and, like, fight him off at night. However, Margaret didn't consider that Jim would turn to Mary after Margaret's rejection. When Mary was around seven, maybe eight, she had asked Margaret if she had ever been bothered by Jim. And Margaret shut down the conversation immediately, pretending like she didn't know what she was talking about. Oh, no. These poor women. So the girls were also the first to notice that Jim was just as unstable as Donald, especially Because they spent so much time with him. Right. In their minds, having to block out the memories of Jim and his violence, especially towards his wife, was what they had to do just to get a few days away from the family home. Mm -hmm. They also didn't understand that what Jim was doing wasn't right because it wasn't the first time one of their brothers had done something like that. 
Oh, no. Around the age of three, one of Mary's earliest memories was of Brian molesting her. Margaret also remembers being touched by Brian more than once. But because Brian was so beloved in the family and he left so quickly after high school, they didn't say anything. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So that's the end of the trigger warning for now. We move on. That's a lot to deal with. Why do you think I texted you saying I'm crying right now? So the third oldest, John, tried to stay out of the situations with the family. He loved classical music. In the fall of 1968, he went on to the University of Colorado in Boulder on a scholarship to the music program, and he rarely came home. In his junior year, 1970, he met his girlfriend, Nancy. Don told John that music was a selfish profession because it wasn't helping anyone. So John was particularly shocked that on the day of his wedding to Nancy, Don told the mother of the bride that Nancy got the best of the litter. Aw, that's actually cute. Brian, the fourth son, was described Mm -hmm. as the best-looking Galvin boy, which I don't necessarily agree with, because they did include (laughs) pictures in this book. So, like, you could see the pictures. Uh, He's particularly talented in music, so, like, you could hear a song on the radio and play it perfectly on the piano moments later. Brian? Yes, Brian. Oh, damn. Uh, he was incredibly quiet and very shy. Uh, he would play chess with his brother, Mark, who also happened to be a tr- chess prodigy. It's uh, always the quiet ones. Okay, you're a prodigy, but you're also a child molester, so... No, that's Mark. <laughs> that Mark is the prodigy. But Brian's a oh, music prodigy, I just so... I it was Brian. Well, he would play with... Mo- that's what play- I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're both... Pro- yeah, yeah, they're both play. prodigies. I got it now. I got it. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. in June of 1971... He opened for Jethro Tull at the Red Rocks, the same show that would live in infamy as the Riot at the Red Rocks. Michael, the fifth son, graduated high school in 1971, and he fully embraced the label of hippie. He hitchhiked to Aspen, (laughs) from Aspen to Indiana, hoping to make it all the way to New York in time for the concert for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden. He didn't make it, though, because he got arrested in Pennsylvania for taking a bath in a river. It happens sometimes, yeah. okay? And when the judge asked him where he was from, he responded, I'm from planet Earth. At least that's oh how I imagine he said Lord. it. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Automatically, I'd be like, jail. <laughs> Immediately, jail. Jail. Straight to jail. <laughs> so during his teenage years, Michael resolved to spend more time at his friend's house than at home. He rebelled against every expectation of the family, rejecting the dress code pushed on them their entire lives. Things got so bad that he was sent to Jacksonville, Jacksonville, Florida in 1968 for the school year to live with like... enough being yeah. sent to Florida. <laughs> As an upstater, do you know how many people go down there? Yeah. Oh, absolutely not. It's like New York 2.0. No, thank you. So there he became friends with the Almond Brothers before they were the Almond Brothers. Ooh. <laughs> Pretty cool. So, the most formative experience he had was in the fall of 1971, after he was sent home from the jail in Pennsylvania, Mimi and Dawn sent him to a psychiatric facility for observation, because they thought that there was something wrong. It took Michael a week to realize it did not, he did not belong there, so he slipped out of the hospital, hitchhiked to a friend's house, and called his parents and said, you can't make me go back there, I'm not coming home either. Mood. Honestly, I don't blame this man. (laughs) Because Michael was 18, they really couldn't do much about it, so instead they sent him to Brian in California. 
So Brian had formed another band in California a few hours inland in Sacramento. One day alone, Michael decided to walk to the beach a couple hundred miles away. When the trip became fruitless, he turned around and tried to cut through a trailer park on like a dirt road. And he noticed Mm -hmm. some part of a hose in the middle of the road. So he went up to someone's trailer and like put it on the steps, like hoping like no one would trip over it or whatever. Good Samaritan. Yeah. We love that. He got picked up by the cops a few blocks from Brian's apartment for quote unquote trespassing and quote unquote attempted burglary. Oh my gosh. I hate cops. I hate when they do that. <laughs> he was in jail a few days before he was offered the chance to talk to a doctor and he arranged to have Michael sent to the hospital part of the jail. Because he was a hippie? Like. I don't fucking know. Oh my gosh. Um. He was then transferred to California's most notorious maximum security mental hospital holding 2,000 inmates. This poor man. This poor man. He was there for observation, but being there really shook something in Michael, Michael's brain. He knew nothing was wrong with him, but it doesn't, like, change the fact that that was, like, really happening to him. Like, that wasn't a, a hallucination. It was really happening. It was five months before the courts allowed Michael to plead guilty in exchange for time served. (laughs) Michael realized the only thing wrong with him, in his opinion, was the oppressive way he was raised. My favorite story to come out of this one. So running between the Hidden Valley property and their neighbor's property was like a pathway the kids would play on all the time. And their neighbor had purchased a dirt bike. That's like what I'm assuming a Honda 90 is. I don't know. I didn't look it up. I didn't do my research. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. One day, the neighbor's daughter was driving down the pathway on her dirt bike and almost got clothing lined as she rode down the path. And the oh Mimi, Mimi had put up the wire because she was, as she told the mother, she was sick of hearing the engine from the dirt bike. Bro, you can't do that. The other mother said, we don't like the sounds of the sirens at your house all the time, but we put up with it. Oh, my. Burned. Got him. So, between hospital stays, Donald was home in time for his brother Richard's wedding. This wasn't the most pleasant affair as John's was because Richard had gotten a girl pregnant and that's why they were getting married. You know what? You have no room to judge since that's what happened to you. Yeah. So, Donald announced at the wedding that he was not allowing the marriage and the marriage is not in the truth of God. Oh my, shut the fuck up. He was subdued by Jim and Don. No, Donald said this, not Don. Oh. Yeah. The mentally unstable one said that. Because he's fucking psycho and tried to kill his wife. (laughs) I don't want to hear it. You're not the picture of marriage counseling here, sir. Well, okay, he's mentally ill. (laughs) Okay, but you can't just be giving out God's, like, favor to people. Come on. So he was subdued by John and Don. John and Don. By Jim and Don. And and ultimately went back to Pueblo. So back in California, Brian has a new girlfriend, Lorelai Smith, or Nani, as her friends call her. She was three Uh years younger than Brian. And she grew up in Lodi, a small town outside Sacramento. She was a horse girl. She had lots of horse ribbons. Like, show ribbons. Uh Nani was a teenager when her mother died from a combination of pills and alcohol. She went away to boarding school but came back and lived with her sister 
to finish up uh-huh. at the local high school. Mm-hmm. And on February, whoa, I'm dyslexic. On Friday, <laughs> September 7th, 1973, the Lodi Police Department got a call from Nani's boss at a veterinary hospital. And typically uh-huh. the police wouldn't investigate something like this. Like she hadn't come back from work and they were like, we're going to call the cops. And typically right. they wouldn't get involved in something like this mm-hmm. unless everyone else knew there was something like going on that wasn't correct. It was not right. Right. Nani right. and Brian had broken up the previous month and mm-hmm. they've been arguing ever since. And Nani was living alone. Mm-hmm. So the first officer to respond at the apartment, the door was open. Mm-hmm. Inside, he found Brian and Nani on the floor with a twenty-two caliber rifle next to them. I'm not going to go into detail about how they were murdered or how it happened, but it was a murder-suicide situation. Oh, no. Don and Mimi told the little kids that it was a bicycle accident to save them from finding out that their brother did that. Oh, no. Many of the others didn't get the full story either and thought it was a robbery gone wrong. Oh, no. Some of them... Some of them would not believe what the police found, that Brian had bought the murder weapon the day before, and what happened to Nani seemed to be premeditated. Yeah. But what only Dawn and Mimi knew, and no one else did for years, was that Sometime before his death, Brian was prescribed Nvanin, Nvanin, I believe, mm-hmm. which is an antipsychotic. Great. So Michael had actually been in California at the time of Brian's death. He was in Los mm-hmm. Angeles and had been planning on going up to see Brian, but was like, "Oh, I'll go up in a couple more days, like just a couple days." And right. in that time, that happened. Oh no. So without even knowing about Brian's prescription, the other brothers kind of started putting two and two together. Mm-hmm. So John and Nancy left Colorado for Idaho, where they started working as music teachers for a local school. Aww. Yeah, I know. Like That's a perfect cute. little life. They're so cute. Joe, the seventh son and the oldest of the four hockey boys, because there were four of them that played hockey. I think it was Joe, Mark, mm-hmm. Matthew, and Peter were the three hockey boys. Mm-hmm. Four hockey boys. He moved to Denver to work for an airline soon after graduating high school. Mark graduated high school. He left home. And went to UC Boulder. After Mm -hmm. Brian's funeral, Donald returned to Pueblo, and it appeared his religious inclinations were getting more intense. So he returned home in February of 74 with new medication that I'm not going to even try to pronounce. They were like a (laughs) 24-letter word. Like, nope, no, we're not here for it. So the only ones still left at home, besides Donald and, like, the parents, were Matt, Peter, Mm -hmm. Margaret, and Mary. Okay. Don had not spent, like, a lot of time really trying to get to know his kids. He was always working. But what happened to Brian seemed almost impossible for Don to move past. And uh, one morning in June of 75, Don was getting ready to take Peter to an early morning hockey practice when he collapsed. Don was hospitalized for six months after a stroke. Oof. Yeah. He was paralyzed on his right side. And his short-term memory seemed completely gone. Oh, no. That's really sad. Yeah. He regained some control over his body, but he still had difficulty remembering people's names or much of his life after World War II. 
Oh no. Oh, that's like most of his life. <laughs> so Don retired from the Federation because of the stroke. So 14-year-old Peter always seemed to be starting arguments and defying expectations, but like not in a good way mm-hmm. kind of thing. So Mimi's right. feared that the more rebellious he got and the further off course he did, he might go the way of Donald, Jim, and Brian. And she was worried. Also like to point out that Peter was present and literally standing over his dad as he was having the stroke. And there was like nothing he could do about it because he was 14. Right. right. So not long after his dad's stroke, in, he was in algebra class and he started like speaking in gibberish. And the teacher told him <laughs> to stop and he just like wouldn't. <laughs> Which I'm sorry, like, and I'm th- this isn't to make light of it, but, like, I know so many guys in high school that would have just said no and kept doing it. Yeah, that's just such a guy thing like, to do. Like, such a teenage like, oh, boy to do. To... Yeah. yeah, oh, you want me to stop? I'm going to do it more now. But based on, like, his family history, I get why, like, it was, like, a, a red flag. So he right. ended up being admitted to Penrose Hospital in Colorado Springs just long enough for doctors to stabilize him. Because Mimi had her hands pretty full with her sick son and now her sick husband she ended up sending him off to hockey camp anyway oh great so while there peter completely fell off the wagon he was wetting the bed he was spitting on the floor and he was hitting other campers mm, yeah that seems like a cry to ha- for help yeah to me, but so he was own. admitted to brady hospital where he was prevented from having visitors for weeks When Mimi was finally able to visit Peter, she found him strapped to a bed with no sheets and the room just reeked of urine. Mm. So she immediately pulled him out and in September of 75, she took Peter to the University of Colorado Hospital. He was in the waiting room for so long that he ended up urinating on himself. Oh, no. And when he was admitted, his speech was too slurred to be understood. The doctor wrote, and I I quote, So it's sad to note that as the patient became more provocative his family thought this was his normal level of functioning so like they he was like it's sad that the family thought like this was normal for him yeah yeah that is there's something going on there with the family yeah well there is something going on they have like five other kids that are sick so the notes for peter's hospital stay in 1975 were extraordinarily brutal towards mimi One doctor wrote that she was unwilling or unable to hear unpleasant news and that she was really good at giving Peter, like, mixed signals and that she was also good at stopping him from talking about any areas of conflict. (laughs) Like, damn. (laughs) Mimi and Dawn had a meeting with the hospital doctors and they basically told her that she was the primary reason all of her kids were getting sick. Oh, no, poor Mimi. So after that, she decided to never send her kids back to the university system again, and it was only going to be Playblow. <laughs> I was like, damn, all right. Oh, damn, okay. So during the Christmas holiday of 75, Mimi received a phone call from Nancy Gary, the wife of the very wealthy Sam Gary from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, like, they weren't particularly close, for whatever reason, that phone call... Mimi just, like, snapped and just unloaded and told Nancy everything about what was happening with the boys. So Nancy was like, all right, you need to get the girls out of there. Send Margaret to me. Uh-huh. And, like, that day, Margaret Mary was in hysterics when her sister left. Like, and she didn't know why she couldn't go with her. Uh-huh. So, again, this is, like, a deep dive chapter into the history of one of, like, the extraordinary doctors who made huge steps in the research of schizophrenia but to mm-hmm. avoid confusion, I'm just going to keep it short she, because they do, like, a whole background on her. 
Um, But for the focus of this, I did want to focus on the family. So I will talk about what she did, but I'm not going to give her entire life story. So. Right. um, Lynn DeLisi was the doctor who had, was a doctor who had great interest in the neurological implications of schizophrenia and the cause of the disease. Her goal Mm -hmm. was to track down families who had multiple members that had schizophrenia, preferably siblings, to look at their genetic code to find any similarities in their DNA and what was different from the ones with schizophrenia, if that makes sense. Mary was very different from Margaret. She didn't internalize her feelings about what was happening at home. She was very just direct and very independent. One of my favorite things that they mentioned in the book was that when she was called smoking a cigarette at school and her mother asked her what they should do about it, Mary said, put up a no smoking sign like a baddie. Oh my gosh, mood. But she was very independent, and I think that's a a necessity of being the youngest of 12. Right. So during junior high, she spent a lot of her time at her friend's house trying to stay away from home because she had so many sick brothers there. Mary would often go with her father to the academy swimming pool while he was rehabilitating after his stroke. His short-term memory was still compromised, and it never, like, really fully recovered. Sam Gary mm-hmm. would try and throw him some consulting jobs here and there, but it just never really turned out well. Right, right. So Don's military pension was a lot of strain. Like, it wasn't a lot, so it strained having to care for Peter and Don. Peter right. and Donald. Right. It became a lot. So Don had suggested, like, maybe Peter and, and Donald should live somewhere else. And Mimi was right. like, where would they go? But Mary always appreciated that her father even spoke up, even if it wasn't going to go anywhere, because at least, like, he was thinking about the well-being of all of his children, not just the sick ones, which Mimi tended to do, was just think about the sick ones. Right. So, in the spring of 76, Matt graduated from high school and left home, leaving Mary and just her sick brothers, and sometimes even Jim, when he was having his fights with Kathy. Oh, great. Yeah. So, in 1973, Carl Pfeiffer founded the Brain Bio Center. Mary, mm-hmm. uh, Mimi contacted him about her family, and he offered to bring them out to Princeton, New Jersey, to run tests. Pfeiffer believed that mental illness could probably be blamed on nutritional deficiencies. Excuse me, sir. No. Um, so Pfeiffer yeah, okay. gave them sure. pills to take to balance out their nutritional or blood deficiencies, but the pills made mm-hmm. Mary so sick that she would hide them in her hand and throw them in the woods on her way to school. Uh-huh. Which flashback memories of doing that yes, myself. Seriously. So uh, the police found Donald wandering Route 24 in March of 76. And then he ended up back at Pueblo. So the next chapter, we just get an explanation of Margaret's, Margaret's experience living with the Garys and how much money they had and how perfect their house was. How Margaret always felt like an outsider, even though... They treated her like one of theirs. Mm -hmm. She also tried to hide her family's mental illness and pretend like everything was okay at this amazing new private school that she went to that the Garys had put her in. Mm -hmm. In 1967, Matt enrolled at Loretta Heights, a private college in Denver, not far from where the Garys lived. Mm -hmm. Nancy Gary was very impressed with Matt's pottery skills and offered for him to stop by whenever he wanted. And he did stop by one day to show Mary show nancy a vase he had made margaret heard something happening downstairs and when she came down the stairs she found her brother completely naked and he had smashed the vase he had made what the fuck 
it was a shock because his breakdown came so completely out of left field. Like, there were no early signs. Right. So, Margaret felt like her old world was, like, colliding with her new one, and she didn't know how to handle it. Oh, no. This poor girl. I know. Michael goes to live in a commune in Tennessee in 1974, founded by Stephen Gaskin, which I'm so curious about this. Definitely going to go look up a book about him. Right. So he learned how to deal with his problems in a more meditative way and less physical in the way that his brothers Uh and he used to bash each other's faces in kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Michael loved his experience there and finding new ways of thinking, essentially. Michael left the farm after about eight months, taking his new mindset with him into, like, the world. He hitchhiked to Albuquerque and then to L.A. and then got a plane ticket for $130 to Hawaii. Must be nice. Yeah, damn. So he was about to leave for the Philippines when his mother called and said she missed him and wanted him to come home. (laughs) And she would send him a ticket. And like the good little boy he is, he went home. Wow. And he tried to put the tools he learned at the farm to use, but none of the family really wanted to even try. And he kind of just like felt like he wanted to give up at that point because it was very frustrating for him. Right. So, at this point, Matt believes that he controls the stoplights in Colorado Springs. Uh Uh-huh. He also believes he's Paul McCartney. (laughs) Okay. And Mary, the only, quote-unquote, sane child, well, not quote-unquote, but the only sane child living at home at this point. So, Matt entered Pueblo in December of 78. Peter joined Mm -hmm. him at Pueblo five days later. Oh, great. Oh, like, you know, they could be roomies. Family, (laughs) grown-up boy bonding time. Right. At this point, Peter refused any help. He was not cooperating. He didn't... He did everything he could not to be on his medication. He could get oh violent gosh. on his... Uh, at his stays at home. That he even broke, like, the picture windows, like, in their house. Aww. Aww. So during one of his stays at Pueblo, one of the doctors was starting to suspect Peter might not actually be schizophrenic, but he actually might be bipolar. And this created Uh a whole new set of problems as he couldn't be trusted to take the lithium as his medication because it would require him monitoring his blood, taking it three times a day. And he wasn't even good about taking the medication he was already on. Right. So he seemed to be stabilizing on the schizophrenia medication. So they just stuck with that diagnosis. Oh, Lord. And for the next several years, he was prescribed drugs for schizophrenia when it might not have been the problem at all. Oh, great. So, Daniel was in and out of Pueblo over the next years, still talking about Jean and referring to her as his wife nearly a decade after their divorce. Oh, my God. Their other brothers, John, Richard, Mark, and Joe, all seemed to be living peacefully. Joe was driving a fuel truck for an airport. He was living quietly, but he was starting to display signs of psychosis. Oh, Lord. So, Mary applied for the same boarding school as Margaret, but was denied. She ended up applying and getting into Hotchkiss in Connecticut with the cover, mm-hmm. the cost being covered by a scholarship and transportation there being covered by the Garys. So this part is an enormous trigger warning for like a, a little while. Like I skip forward because this is a lot, but it's also very important to Mary's story and I don't want to do an injustice to her by not including it. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Mary's 13 and Jim is now 31. Okay. He was working at the Manitou Incline, which was like a ski hill in the area. 
there was this musty old cabin on the property that as a manager, Jim had access to. In the spring of 1979, Jim invited Mary and Matt to have a sleepover at the cottage. Do not like where this is going. Like the times before, Jim advanced on her, but this night was different. Mary couldn't go through with it. She had gotten her period, and she was more scared of getting pregnant than she was of Jim's violent retaliation, if she said no. Mm -hmm. She tried to fight him off, but he attacked anyway. So Mary was scared for a couple weeks that she might be pregnant, but ultimately she was not. Before her Hotchkiss, uh, she was invited to a high school party hosted by an older brother of a friend. She told Mimi she was sleeping over a friend's house that night and didn't tell her about the party. She drank a lot. And she was invited with her friend to, like, a well-known make-out spot with the older brother and his friends. Her friend said no. She had to go home and take care of her little sisters. But Mary went. They returned to Mary's friend's house, and the friend and her sisters were sleeping. The boys Mm -hmm. found a walk-in closet and directed Mary in seeking some sort of privacy. Mary woke up the next morning with no memory of what happened and was extremely hungover. Oof. And then, like, a wave kind of just, like, hit her what had happened the night before. Uh-huh. The three boys had violated her in that closet. Uh, uh, don't like that. And don't like this. in Mary's mind, that was a fitting punishment for such a bad girl. Which, like, just absolutely Because of what me. happened? Because yes. of what happened with her brother? Yes. And, like, for drinking and all of that. This woman, this girl, she, she needs some therapy. Feeling the shame some. of what had happened, Mary didn't tell anyone. Yeah. So that's the end of that. That That's, I think, like, the worst of it. I'm, like, a hun- I'm like 99% sure that that's the last of the bad stuff. Like, the really, mm-hmm. really bad stuff. Um, so she made a promise to herself that day that when she got to Hotchkiss, things would be different. When she got to the school, the teacher told her there was already a Mary Galvin there and asked her what her middle name was. She always hated her <laughs> middle name because of the implications Donald attached to it. As being mm-hmm. Mary Christine, Mary Christ. Yeah, yeah. Right. So she told them Lindsay after her great-grandfather on her mother's side. So right. from then on, Mary was Lindsay. So for the rest of mm-hmm. this, I'm going to refer to her as Lindsay because okay. that's how it is in the That's book. easy. Right. So this is another chapter discussing the path one of the doctors that worked with the Galvins was on and his backstory. If you want to look him up, Robert Friedman, but we're just not going to do his backstory. He's a very popular um, he is? scientist. Yeah. No, I've definitely heard of him before. I definitely have never. So they discussed the theory of sensory gating, which is basically the brain being unable to process something twice in a row, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So Friedman developed a test to measure the brain sensitivity to schizophrenia by way of sensory gating. Mm -hmm. He asked the question, what if it wasn't schizophrenia, schizophrenic patients' ability to respond to stimuli or lack thereof, but that they lack the ability not to? Like, they couldn't censor, they couldn't filter out the stimuli. It was too much stimuli. Right. So, in 1979, in Denver, Friedman developed the method of measuring brain waves by placing small electrodes on the test subject's scalp. Bigger brain waves meant the brain was working harder to process that information, and smaller mm-hmm. ones meant it was doing less. His okay. experiment was by measuring the patient's reaction to hearing a noise, so, like, a clicking sound twice. Right. Right. In a sane patient, the brain would have one big wave to process the first click and then a smaller one for the second one because the brain had already heard it. Right. For schizophrenic patients, there would be two big waves because they have to process it twice. Mm-hmm. So Freeman found 
that was exactly the case for schizophrenic patients was that they would produce two big waves and the deficiency might be genetic. That's really interesting. And yeah. that all it takes is one gene to find that deficiency. Mm-hmm. So now that this point, Margaret and Lindsay become incredibly close, having moved out of the family home and getting older. And having some shared trauma. Yeah. So Lindsay was still at Hotchkiss in 1982 when Joe, the seventh son, had his first psychotic break. He was working at an airport in Chicago, dating a doctor's daughter, and a wedding seemed just like right around the corner until Joe was refused a promotion. Oh, no. Joe started sending threatening letters to his bosses, and when he was fired from United, he started sending threatening letters to the White House. Oh, fun. Yeah. Fun, fun, fun. Great, great. Love that. Mm -hmm. When Uh Joe was hospitalized, Lindsay flew to Chicago to see him with her parents, and this was the first time she had seen any of her brothers in a psychiatric unit. Yeah. So Joe returned to Colorado, where he started hearing voices. And in May of 82, he went to Pueblo for the first time. Michael tried to help Joe as much as he could because he believed that all this was psychological and that Joe was choosing to be sick and not doing anything to help himself. (laughs) Oh, no. Mm, And none of what the work he was doing with Joe actually worked. And he became very frustrated, which is like... Yeah, of course it wouldn't, dum-dum. Yeah, I understand where Michael was coming from, like, in the thought process of, oh, he's not trying to help himself. But... Right. That it's very different, <laughs> very different from anxiety yeah. to schizophrenia. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. so in the fall of 1980, Margaret started her freshman year at Skidmore College in upstate New York. It would, she would ultimately end up transferring to the University of Colorado in Boulder for her second year. That summer, while <laughs> following the Grateful Dead on tour, she met her <laughs> husband first husband Chris. He had been an upperclassman at Skidmore and had seen her on campus but like didn't say anything until they saw each other that summer. His father was a, an oil executive and he came from immense wealth. So it was no I was going to say I'm hearing ching ching. So it was no right. surprise that they ended up getting engaged on New Year's Eve in 1983. Margaret's friend Wiley was not having it. Not having it. He was a fully against this union. But she saw it as, like, this man is going to take care of me in a way that my parents never did. You know what? And that's fair. Yeah. But her parents approved, and the date was set for August. Leading up to the wedding, the brothers all had different psychiatric problems and whatever in, like, the in the, the months between. Right. And in early 1984, after 16 years of marriage, Kathy finally left Jim. And it came after she saw Jim hit their son for the first time when Jimmy was 14. Jimmy had stepped between Kathy and Jim when he was going to hit Kathy. So Jim hit his son instead. Mm -hmm. The night before her wedding, Wiley called Margaret and offered to send her a ticket to Massachusetts (laughs) if she didn't go through with the wedding. This man is a homie. He's... The, a real one. So He is a real one. She did end up marrying Chris the next morning after crying her eyes out the night before. Which, like, poor. Aww. Poor girl. So, Lindsay graduated from Hotchkiss in 1984 and attended UC Boulder. She did well, but she was tired of feeling like she was hiding something in, front, in herself. So, she mm-hmm. went to a campus therapist who, upon hearing Lindsay's story, didn't even believe her. Oh, yeah. I mean... I you can't you have to believe your patient, but like understandable, it is a lot. It's it a lot. lot. So that fall, Lindsay started seeing Sam and Nancy Carey's nephew, 
who she basically had grown up with. Right. They had been dating for a few months and were about to do the duty, the dirty, you know. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay couldn't go through with it. He asked her what the matter was, but not in, like, an angry, like, aggressive way, but, like, in a genuine concern right. as, like, a kid that right. was literally in love with her, like, his entire life. Aw. Right. So she just, like, started crying and unloaded and told him everything. Oh, no. They left the apartment and he was like, I don't know what to do, but I know someone who would. And he took Lindsay to his aunt, Nancy Gary, who immediately took Lindsay to a real therapist. Good. Good for her. So Lindsay was started taking the first steps into integrating the parts of her that she had fragmented off to deal with the abuse and the trauma, like, back into herself. So Lindsay decided to confront her mother about Jim mm-hmm. on the porch of their friend's house. Oh. Well, Which, I like, mean, I guess you want, like, neutral territory, yeah. so. <laughs> so Mimi's reaction was very blasé and she said well when she was a girl it happened to her so okay. and i'm not going to go into detail i'll say it was her stepfather yikes um and mimi did speak up when she saw him starting to prey on her little sister and that was when uh her mother Lindsay's grandmother left that stepfather so Lindsay was frustrated that mimi kind of like brushed off her experience in the conversation and chalked it up to Jim's illness and that for once she just wanted her mother to take her side and Mimi wouldn't. Right. So she told Mimi uh, she was never going to be in the same room as Jim literally ever again. Like, do not Good. expect it. You set your boundaries, girlfriend. So during a Sunday dinner, Lindsay was there. Uh, Jim was not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. So when he surprisingly showed up, Don stood up and told him to leave. When Jim asked why he didn't belong there... Mimi said shit. Absolutely nothing. Finally, Lindsay just lost her shit and started screaming at him about what he did to her. He wasn't in good shape. Like, he was gaining weight and, like, red-faced angry. Jim picked up a guitar and smashed it in half and called Lindsay a liar and started yelling. But he, like, read the room. (laughs) He could see that no one was going to believe him or listen, so he left. Don told him to get out and that he never wanted to see him at this house again. When Jim left, Joe comforted Lindsay and told her, you're not a liar. I know you're not lying. And like when she thinks back to that day, she thinks about how the fact that her brother and her dad believed her. Right. And like didn't brush it off the same way Mimi did. Right. Because that's validating. Yes. Right. So... Backtracking to Delisi, she heard about the Galvin family and she had to fly out there and see for herself. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So she asked all the family members to participate in her study, even the ones that weren't sick. All, All the six, all six, excuse me, all five, I should say, of the sick boys agreed to participate. So how, like, which ones is it then? It's Donald, Jim, Jim, Brian, Peter... Matt and Joe. Matthew and Joe. Okay, so there's six of them. Okay. Um, But five now because Brian is... Brian's dead. Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and all of the well children agreed to do it except for Richard. John was living in Idaho but had his blood drawn remotely and sent to Delisi. So, Friedman also visited the Hidden Valley Road house several times over the years after Delisi. He took blood samples and administered his own questionnaires to the family. Mm Mm-hmm. So at this point, Donald is slowly becoming a shell of himself. After years of being medicated, his weight was increasing. He wasn't walking as much, and he was slowly just becoming a hermit. 
Right. He became very upset when he found out Peter might be moving home after a failed attempt at living by himself. Aww. Jim was also living alone, getting his medication. He seemed to be suffering from depression. He was overweight, frail, and weak. Joe seemed to be the only one who was self-aware of his illness. Mm -hmm. He realized he was seeing things that weren't really there, Mm -hmm. but he couldn't stop it. And he ended up putting on tremendous weight. Uh So it made his problems like 10 times worse. His eyesight was failing him. He was starting to develop borderline diabetes, like, Uh but he never stopped wanting to have that connection with his family. He would send them religious cards and send them spend money on presents that he did not like have money for. Mm -hmm. One time he overheard Michael's grown daughter saying she didn't have, she couldn't pay for her college textbook, textbooks, excuse me. And a week later, she got a letter in the mail with $500 that said four books and everyone knew it only could come from Joe, which like makes me so like my heart like breaks for them. So Matt appeared to be getting more grisly in age as the author put it, Mm -hmm. imposing like and bearing the resemblance of like a hell's angel kind of look feel. Yeah. He was in and out of Pueblo until 1986 when doctors changed his medication and like shit changed for him. Mm-hmm. He did have moments where he didn't want to be on medication and believe the medication was causing a bunch of, like, shitty world events that were happening. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, he got right with himself, you know. Right. So Peter continued to rail against his medication. He became very mm-hmm. religious and preaching his feelings. He told the doctors at Pueblo that he had been hearing voices from God telling him to obey the commandments and love one another. Okay. He was also asked if he was ever sexually or physically abused. He said yes. He was abused as a child by his brother, but he refused to say which. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by, like, the worst of the abuse stuff is done. It's just, like, little one-offs everywhere. Right. right. So John and Nancy rarely ever visit, partly out of fear of their brother's conditions. Mm-hmm. Richard's marriage didn't last so long. They ended up getting divorced. Uh, he got heavy into coal mining. That was, like, his job of choice. Mark, the eighth son, went to UC Boulder. He ended up dropping out and getting married. He had three kids, got divorced, got remarried, and eventually found a full-time job managing the college bookstore. Oh, okay. Good for him. Now in his 60s, when Don has visitors, he takes out the family photo album and points out the photos of his six sons and tells them how much government benefits they get. (laughs) That's that's awesome. I love that. Margaret and Lindsay eventually did talk about what happened with Jim and their parallel experiences. Mm -hmm. Margaret's marriage to Chris crumbled after she got pregnant and he insisted on her getting an abortion. She did, but she did end up getting. Mm -hmm. Only for him to divorce her Nine months later, the irony there is not lost on me. Yeah. No. No, it is not. Margaret sought comfort in Wiley, and they do end up getting married and having two kids. I love that. I love We love... Yes. So Margaret becomes super invested in yoga and just bettering herself. Margaret does confront Jim a few years after Lindsay over the phone. Of course, Jim denied everything. Of course. Um, when Margaret told Mimi about what happened with Jim, she got the same response that Lindsay did, that, it, oh, it happened to me too, kind of thing. Right, right. At this point, Peter had charges brought against him after attacking an orderly at Pueblo. <laughs> so Lindsay visited him Whoops. at jail and decided that she was going to do whatever she had to do to help her brother because mm-hmm. Peter was the closest one to her age. Uh-huh. So, like, they just were always, I don't know, I guess that was, like, their connection. 
Mm-hmm. She wanted to break him out of the habit of going between home and Pueblo, home and Pueblo. She right. wanted to get him into talk therapy and really change the way his routine was. Mm-hmm. Lindsay graduated from UC Boulder with a degree in marketing. So she met her would-be husband, Rick, working at an event at a ski arena. Lindsay believed that her brothers had been poorly served and being sent to Pueblo so frequently in her lifetime. Whereas Margaret really had wanted nothing to do with Lindsay's new mission. She was more focused on on helping and healing herself, which good for her. Right. That's totally fair and valid. Things seem to, whenever things seem to be on the up and up for Peter and his time with Lindsay, um, because he kept fighting to not go back in the system. He didn't want to do that. And while these good times lasted for a while until Peter felt so well that he didn't think he needed his meds anymore. And then that's when things kind of derail. Right. Right. One night he was playing music in the street. Peter ran into Dr. Friedman again, who had taken the family's blood like years prior. And he remembered Dr. Friedman. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Friedman took over treating Peter and would regularly debrief Lindsay on his treatment because Lindsay took over like his power of attorney. Right. So Lindsay learned from Friedman that there's a genetic deep predisposition to schizophrenia that could be triggered by environmental clauses. Mm -hmm. Peter had a whole host of trauma in his life between witnessing his dad's stroke Mm -hmm. and Lindsay asking him if he'd also been touched by Jim and Peter said yes. So that was the brother that had done it. Right, 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 right. So Mimi often blamed Don uh, and his side of the family for the illnesses <laughs> just all the time, which was really shitter- shitty considering the state of his body physically and mentally dealing with the fact that his son was abusing his daughters for so long and he had no idea that he would physically like get choked up when someone would bring it up. Right. So, okay, this is another trigger warning. It's a small trigger warning, but it's a trigger warning nothing lo- nonetheless. Um, in the 90s, Mimi was shocked when Donald came to her and told her that he had been a victim of abuse at the hands of their family friend, Father Freudy. Hmm. This was around hmm. the time that it was coming out that priests were taking liberties with their parishioners' children. So Mimi renounced her faith and said she wanted to be cremated and not have a Catholic burial. <laughs> she went full in. Yeah, she was like, nope, not today, Satan. So Mimi also started sharing... So that's like... The end of that trigger warning was that Donald was... Right. Yes. Right. So Mimi also started sharing stories of Don years earlier in their marriage that his hospitalization in 55 was due to a great depressive episode and Uh the girls almost like didn't believe her. But then Uh she started... It started to make sense that maybe some of the boys got their violent streak from him. Mm -hmm. She also admitted that he had had a number of affairs, six that she knew about. Great. Love that. Mm -hmm. Love that. Love it. Love it. I love it. So this is now medical testing in 1998. It's very confusing to explain without like having it in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I give a lot of credit to the author because I could never write this. (laughs) Like I could never do this. Basically, Friedman found like there's this receptor in the brain called alpha seven that sends messages. So Mm -hmm. and needs a compound with it to fully work. Friedman found that people with schizophrenia had that faulty alpha-7 receptor, which caused their problems. They found the precise location of the receptor's problems where it took place, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in 1997, Friedman found the first gene to be connected to schizophrenia. Oh, wow. So, Friedman also found that alpha-7 receptors... Alpha-7 receptors have a special relationship with nicotine. 
And that's why schizophrenia patients will smoke so much because it balances out that receptor, I guess. That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, he wanted to make a pill that they could take and it would end up like helping a great number of people because Mm -hmm. it would fix that issue. The problem was, was that drug companies wanted to make this pill a once a day pill, which is just not Uh possible. Like it'd have to be a three to four time a day kind of thing. Oh shit. Yeah. According to Dr. Friedman. Right. But the drug companies were like, no, it has to be once a day. And every time they tried to make a drug that was once a day, they all failed. Mm -hmm. So like, maybe just listen to the fucking doctors. But that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. So Delisi was working on researching families with schizophrenia in 2000. Uh, The company she was working with was bought by Fitzer, the drug company. And they ultimately shut down her research because... Fitzer, not Pfizer? Pfizer, sorry. My, it's, I was like, t- maybe that's a different company. Uh, it's talk to text. Leave me be. I'm just trying to yeah. help you out, No, sis, you're good. Unless you want. <laughs> I'm going to tweet you all the time now. Fitzer. <laughs> just write it randomly. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get different accounts and tweet it <laughs> at our book account. <laughs> because of the Human Genome Project in 2000, it accelerated the ability to look at genes and DNA in a new way, which is what Delisi was working on. Things with Peter were not doing great by 2004. His medis- medication he was taking was not working, and he was very uncooperative with his treatment. Mm-hmm. So on September 4th, for the first time, the doctors acquired court paperwork to perform ETC, also known as shock therapy. Oh, fun. He continued to receive shock therapy weekly while still actively fighting this procedure and treat any treatment. After mm-hmm. several rounds of ET- ECT, ECT. I always say ETC. I don't know why. Maybe that's my dyslexia, but it's ECT. After several rounds of it, he appeared to be symptom-free, but by June of 2006, he was back in Pueblo refusing to eat because he believed the food was poison and he thought God was talking to him. (laughs) Sick. So his ECT sessions continued. Fun. So Jim Galvin was in and out of the emergency room complaining of chest pain and tingling in his limbs. The staff wrote it off as paranoia because he thought there was a big gaping hole in his chest saying, look, I've been shot. You can't see it. Oh, Lord. So they would continue to send him home. Mm-hmm. On March 2nd, 2001, Jim died alone in his apartment in Colorado Springs at the age of 53. The cause of death recorded was heart failure related to his use of neuroleptic drugs. Neuroleptic drugs can actually cause death in some cases. It's rare, but it can be caused by the drugs. That's supposed to be helping Fun. him. So love that. Oh, great. Kathy and Jimmy did not attend the funeral, which, fair. <laughs> Understandable. So now that Jim was gone, Margaret felt like she could finally ask her parents why they would constantly send Margaret and Mary to Jim and Kathy's when they knew he was sick. And Mimi's mm-hmm. response was, he had recovered. And Margaret admitted that no one had ever told her Jim was sick. And Mimi was kind of like exasperated that she had to have, go through explaining all of this again. Oh, my Lord. Then don't have 12 kids, (laughs) dum-dum. Idiot. Oh, I want to explain things multiple times. Then don't have 12 kids. Listen, it's been two hours of this bullshit of this mother. So, Don Galvin died on January 7th, 2003 at the age of 78. His death was cancer, and he was less than 100 pounds at the time of it. He received a full military service. All of the Falcons from the Academy were there on the day of the funeral. I would hope so. Absolutely. He for 20 years. Over 20 years. After his death, his brain was sent to Dr. Friedman's lab, lab, 
who concluded there was no physical traits that were associated with mental illness or impairment. So he didn't have any mental illness. Hmm. Hmm. So Joe started complaining that his feet were numb and that he couldn't walk. It was snowing, so Mimi couldn't take him to the hospital. She said they'd go in the morning. December 7th, 2009, Joe Galvin died alone at home at the age of 53. Oh, no. His cause of death was heart failure caused by clozapan, clozapine intoxication. It was basically the same thing that Jim had died of. Jim died from. Yeah. yeah. That's really fucking sad, right? especially because they died at the same age. Right? <sighs> Don't like it's that. It's tragic. So mm-hmm. in 2009, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Delisi is still looking for mutations in the DNA that could potentially cause schizophrenia. After testing uh-huh. the Galvins, Delisi found that the mutation, sh- found a mutation shared by all the Galvin boys that are sick from samples mm-hmm. she had collected in the 80s. Called Shank 2. Shit. The mutation was connected to an important process in the brain, and she finally had an answer of why they were getting sick. The mutation mm-hmm. of the different Shank genes can cause different mental illnesses. So some mutations can cause autism, and others can cause other brain disorders. I kept thinking of Matthew every time autism was brought up in the book. <laughs> As you should. My brother my brother has um autism, and I my favorite thing is to just joke about his autism with him because it's just, <laughs> he is the fun he's so funny you should start like a tiktok send, account just for for his autism jokes honestly like when i sent him that one tiktok that i sent you he was like i had it before it was cool <laughs> I was like, Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> oh, oh my god i love oh it okay so can kind of be seen as a spectrum of mental illness of how these genes mutate to produce different illnesses mm-hmm. so it also comes as a surprise to learn that the Shank 2 mutation comes from the mother side of the family. Mm, suggesting that it might have happened because of Mimi. <laughs> well, I'm not... Now we're not entirely sure. It's her fault entirely. It could have been the co-mingling of her DNA with Dawn's to create this mutation. Mm-hmm. But, like, it, it could have been a whole host of things, but the mutation for Shank 2 comes from the mother. Friedman's discovery of the prized gene CHRNA7 was a little too late to help adult patients. This is the nicotine findings. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It was too late to help adult patients as these traits develop in the womb. So obviously he couldn't like medicate or like put a syringe in pregnant people. So right, it was he found that it was a defi- vitamin deficiency that could, might actually be a problem. So mm-hmm. the vitamins were right. <laughs> the more you know. Who would have thought? Womb baby. If a fetus, that's what it is. <laughs> a womb baby? Um, oh if a gosh. fetus doesn't get enough cloline, cloline, I think that's how you say it, um, it can cause problems with that prized gene. So we set out to start an experiment with pregnant women to give them vitamin cloline during their pregnancies. And then he followed those babies through birth into as like they grew up into toddlers. Mm-hmm. And they found that the child the children that got that vitamin in utero um they had normal mm-hmm. normal auditory gait and had fewer attention problems than the control group right. so like it worked and actually mm-hmm. the fda started including cloline in prenatal vitamins because Ooh, of this interesting right interesting okay yeah so he wants to follow those children and i think they're generations after them like in their family for mm-hmm. the experiment, and it's actually 
it was actually funded by Nancy Gary for him to continue that study with those mm-hmm. specific children. Right. So he presented this information and these findings at a symposium in New York City, and Nancy Gary uh-huh. actually brought Lindsay out to reintroduce mm-hmm. her to Friedman because it had been like 20, 30 years since right. the 80s. Right. Nancy boasted about Lindsay's success at Hotchkiss and all that she had done for Lindsay, like saying that she had paid for Lindsay to go there when really Lindsay got a scholarship. Yeah. But Lindsay like bit her tongue. And this is going to be your favorite part. The book literally states, here was the one she had rescued, Nancy said, the one who survived, the girl who lived. Oh. Oh my lord. All right, pack it up, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> so, <sighs> Mimi had uh, another stroke in early 2007. She was in the ICU. Michael, Mark, Lindsay, and even Matt visited her while she was in the hospital. Post the stroke, she, they brought Mimi home and put her in, like, a hospital bed in the basement. And we're, mm-hmm. It was Michael and Lindsay and then a family friend who all... They took care of Mimi, like, day and night, giving her mm-hmm. morphine, everything she needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I guess the author was there interviewing people and he actually talked to Donald who came to visit mm-hmm. at his assisted living facility, he has a companion slash housekeeper, Debbie, who will like take him on errands and such with the intention of going to visit Mimi at the end of those trips. Yeah. <laughs> Donald ultimately decides not to half the time and tells Debbie she's too bossy. <laughs> I would love to be like 72 years old and be like, no, fuck her. She's too bossy. Mood. Same. So he tells the author that he is the father of all of his siblings, but not in a sexual way, but that he can just look at a person and get them pregnant. And I'm sorry, but isn't that like how we all feel about Chris Evans? I knew you were going to say that. And no, I can confirm that is not how we all feel. (laughs) Like I got so uncomfortable with that, like him saying that because it was like, oh my God, we say that as a joke all the time, but he fully believes that he referred to Mimi as his wife. It's crazy. So this chapter was heavy on Mimi's decline after her stroke. And it Mm -hmm. brought back way too many feelings about my grandma. Right. Who literally just died of a stroke not even a year and a half ago. So like still uh, processing those feelings. (laughs) So we're just going to gloss over those. So we're just going to talk to Shannon (laughs) about those feelings tomorrow. Um, (laughs) But so on July 17th, 2017, at 2 a.m., Mimi Galvin died peacefully in her sleep. Amen. God rest her soul. Except for she did not believe in Catholicism anymore. Yeah. So So. maybe do it backwards. Is that like the sign of the devil? Oh, nope. I feel like I just opened a Ouija board. Mm -mm. (laughs) I don't have to worry about those things since uh, we don't do that. So. (laughs) So... Lindsay goes, so now Lindsay goes to visit Peter at his nursing home a few blocks away from Pueblo because they, like, petitioned to move him into a nursing home because he was older, but, like, he's also the youngest person at that nursing home. <laughs> Love that. So he's now entirely compliant with his treatment and his weekly ECT appointments. I'm making sure I said mm-hmm. that right. <laughs> <laughs> um, he often repeats the phrase, I cooperate fully. Uh-huh. Which, like, he just, like, seems so genuinely sweet. And I feel so bad that, like, these... He has to go through ECT, like, bi-weekly sometimes. Like, right. he's also a big smoker, which... Dr. Friedman! Anyway. Right. So, Matt seems 
to be a bit of an organized hoarder, as Lindsay calls it. He's a big Clint Eastwood fan, and he was super disappointed to find out that Clint Eastwood is a Republican. He's not a Republican. He's a Libertarian. How the fuck do you know that off the top of your head? My dad loves Clint Eastwood. (laughs) Clint Eastwood believes that the government has no business telling us anything. Okay. It's like... Mood. Mood sometimes. Mood. So... But, yeah. (laughs) So, Lindsay's children say that he looks a little bit like Hagrid in his, like, appearance love that for him and he enjoys talking about his days playing hockey when he was a kid which is like sweet so Lindsay went to pueblo in 2018 to unearth what was left of her brother's old medical records mm-hmm. this is where she first learns about donald's su- attempted murder suicide with gene she had never mm-hmm. learned that before this right. is also the first time that she hears about donald trying to end his own life when he was 12 uh-huh and Learning about Donald's murder-suicide attempt explained a lot for Margaret because she never really felt satisfied with how vague Mimi kept her answers. Mm -hmm. So, Lindsay was not surprised to find paperwork for all of her brothers, but was very surprised to find paperwork for her father. Mm -hmm. Several years before Don's death, he had been receiving regular ECT sessions himself. Mm -hmm. The stated reason being depression that he had since the early 90s after the death of his brother but Mm -hmm. Lindsay suspected that Mimi knew since she had to be the one driving him to these appointments and she just never said anything yeah that sounds about right yeah so Delisi um had a co-author on the publication for the shank 2 mutation that follow Mm -hmm. that found the DNA samples that Pfizer kept in the split after they shut down Delisi's research. And that mm-hmm. co-author is actually analyzing those samples because he feels like those families still have so much to say in terms of researching schizophrenia. Right. So Margaret was very hands-on in her mother's last few weeks. As I mentioned, she was there every day. She was practically right. living there. And that... Oh, sorry, not Margaret. Margaret was very hands-off in her mother's last few weeks. It was Lindsay who was very hands-on. And that Mm -hmm. bothered Lindsay a lot, that a lot of the responsibility fell on her to deal with Mimi's death. Um, And because of that, the two sisters didn't speak for about six months after Mimi's memorial. Um, But the two sisters were able to reconcile their differences and appreciate each other, that they're both... So, Lindsay's daughter, Kate, started having terrible meltdowns in loud environments when she was a little girl. And Lindsay immediately put her in occupational therapy. (laughs) I was like, no. No. Meltdown. Warning signs. Sounds like an autism thing to me, but maybe that's just my experience. Kate ultimately did thrive, and she took all AP classes, got straight A's, and all of them. She got into Berkeley and turned it down for uh, UC Boulder. Damn. Family alma mater, apparently. Apparently. So her youngest, Jack, also got therapy as a child. He was incredibly intelligent and diagnosed ADD and supplemented his medication with pot. <laughs> which, love that. Love that for him. Jack enrolled in a therapy boarding school in Montana. The school deals with a variety of substances and mental health issues. Lindsay and Rick soon realized that Jack's biggest fear was becoming mentally ill because Mm -hmm. of this family gene that's just... So Jack was at the school for two years, and when he got home, he thrived. In the summer of 2017, 
Dr. Friedman allowed an undergraduate to shadow him in his lab. The pre-med mm-hmm. student from UC Boulder um, had a special has a special interest in neuroscience. It's Kate. Kate, Lindsay's <laughs> daughter, was that student. The lab techs made a joke that her family must have made been huge donors for her to get that spot. And she made a joke and said, are we talking money or tissue? Because they made a lot of donations. True. Looking around the office, Kate kind of like realized that somewhere in the lab was her grandfather's brain. And she wondered if one day she'd be able to look at it. Oh, that's so cool. And that's how the book ends. Woo! (laughs) You're telling me. Nothing better than thinking about your dead grandfather's brain. I mean, listen, if that's what you're into. I mean, Army Hammer's into that shit. You don't know. We don't talk about that. We are not (laughs) going to talk about that very disappointing turn of events. Do you know Army Hammer was in uh, The Social Network? Really? Apparently. I saw his name on the credits when I was watching it for the first time yesterday. Oh my god. Andrew Garfield deserved an Oscar for that performance. So good. Sorry, my prod is at the cleaner along with my hoodie and my fuck you flip-flops. Flip-flops. You pretentious douchebag. Yes. I love that movie. But anyways. (laughs) That literally, I use that line all the time. My fuck you flip-flops. Flip-flops. As you should, working in retail. Thank you. Honestly. Uh, That was a good one though, right? I did a good job. That was crazy. Yeah. It is really interesting, especially because, like I said, I almost went into uh, genetic research, like genetics research, Mm -hmm. because it was so interesting to me, but I ended up going into publishing, ironically. (laughs) Two very different fields. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Between those two things. And it's actually a good thing, because I'm not very good at science. I was never a science kid. But I was always interested in the brain, especially because of my dyslexia. I always wondered, right. like, what it was in my brain that makes me not read right. <laughs> my dad would hate me for putting it that way. Because it, gra- grammatically, that's not right. But. But I get what you're saying. Yeah. Like, what is it? Uh, is it my eyes that are fucked up? Or is it my brain? I know it's a processing thing in my brain, but. Right. It is really interesting. Yeah. So. But you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Bookaholics Pod. You can find me on uh, Goodreads, Alicia Reads 13, or Storygraph, Alicia Reads. And where can they find you? And that you can find me on Twitter at HBI Cheska and on Instagram at Francesca Hope. And we'll see you for the next one. Bye!